talked about the God of all grace. That all grace really comes from God. Last week we talked about the power of God's grace in us to change us and, and, and to sustain us and to finish the work that God started in us. And next week I'm going to pick up with what I believe is probably the most important part of the series as we look at the greatest stage that grace has ever walked upon and we're going to see the grace of God in its full power on Calvary's cross. This week I kind of want to take a pause though from studying God's grace towards us and I want to specifically this morning talk to the church about God's desire for His grace to extend through us. That we have been called to be instruments of grace to a lost and dying world and to each other. As I was studying this week about this topic, one of the things that kind of was somewhat overwhelming to me, grace is probably my favorite attribute of God. If not, it's certainly in the top two or three. When I look at God's unmerited favor, the fact that God demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That while I was lost, while I was an enemy of God, He still loved me enough to give something so that I could come out of that wicked state. That's grace. And then I begin to realize God has chosen us to be instruments of grace. You know, many times Jesus said, follow me. He said, uh, take up your cross and follow me. When He very first came to his, the disciples as they were fishing, He told them to leave everything they had and follow Him. And we see that Jesus is our example in everything. And next week we're going to watch Jesus show us the perfect picture of perfect, holy, undefiled grace. But I begin to think this week, about the awesome responsibility and privilege that we have as God's people to show the grace of God to other people. This morning, that's what I want to talk about. God's grace through us. God's grace is not meant to stop with you. It is meant to work in you. It is meant to change you. It is meant to reconcile you into a right relationship with God. But it is not meant to stop there. God's desire is that it works through us and affects other people. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see the idea that, uh, of us being the body of Christ. We see it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see it also in Romans chapter 12. The idea that we are His hands, we are His feet that we have a responsibility to be Christ, if you will, to this lost and dying world. And today I want to look at specifically how does that work concerning the topic of grace that we are studying. We're going to study together Romans chapter 14 through Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. I will continue to have the text on the screen for you, but this will be our only chapter. So if you want to follow me in your own Bible, 
It will not be that difficult. There won't be a lot of flipping around. But I want to study God's grace through us. And I want you to know there's a very specific reason I've chosen Romans 14. It is a great chapter. It is going to deal with everything that we really need to deal with. But as a pastor, one thing I've noticed about God's people, generally speaking, I'm going to make a very general statement. Generally speaking, we as God's people don't have a whole lot of problems showing grace to a lost and dying world. We don't have a lot of problems showing grace to people that we know are lost, that need help, that need Jesus. But when it comes to us showing grace to each other, I'm telling you as a pastor, I've watched it for years. We typically have very little grace towards each other. We'll, we, we, we don't have any problem working with the lost. We don't have any problem going out and reaching those that, that, that are unreached. But when it comes inside the church, the way we treat each other, we want all these rules, we want all these regulations, we want everybody to be just like us. If they're not like us, we don't want them around. And Romans 14 deals specifically with our grace towards other Christians. And I want to submit to you that if we can get Romans chapter 14 deep down inside our souls and it can become the way that we live and we can treat each other as brothers and sisters the way that God has outlined for us in this chapter that we're about to examine, we will do a tremendous job also showing grace to those that are outside of the church. So this morning I have very strategically chosen Romans chapter 14. Before I read the first uh, four verses, I do want to say this. We need to establish one thing about grace. We're not talking about tolerance as our, as our society currently defines it. We are in an epidemic. And I use the word epidemic properly. We are in an epidemic of time when tolerance has been completely and totally redefined in a way that is inappropriate. And I want to explain what I mean. We're basically told if you love God and if, and if you've got a loving spirit that you'll just tolerate anything, that everything is equal, that all points of view are equal, and that if it works for you, it works for you. If this works for me, it works for me. We just need to accept all schools of thought, all points of view, everybody's um, ideas are equally true. First of all, that's not true. It's just not true. And I can prove it to you with some stuff, step, stepping religion to the side for a moment. You and I can go stand at the top of the Empire State Building and you can think all day long and argue all day long that your truth is just as valid as mine and you believe that you can jump off the entire State Building, hit the pavement and not have any scrapes or bruises. I don't care if you think that till you're deaf. That's exactly how long you'll think it to. You're deaf. There are some things that are absolutely true at all times. Two plus two is always four, regardless of whether or not you think it is something else. Now, whether or not chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla ice cream is a relative truth. Chocolate ice cream is best. We agree over here. 
And I will give you the grace to be wrong about thinking that vanilla ice cream is better. But I want to say this as we begin to dig into tolerance and grace. When I talk about tolerance and I talk about grace, I am not talking about tolerance as our society defines it. And I don't know if you're going to understand the statement I'm going to make, but we're going to make it anyways. One of the things that blows me away about this tolerance group is that they tolerate everything except intolerance. Everything is welcome except my point of view. Well, where's their tolerance with my point of view? I don't have the time to go there this morning. This isn't the point of this message, but I'll say this. Really, it's an attack against Christianity and nothing else. We must learn what is absolute truth and we must stand on it. But as we're going to talk about specifically this morning, we're going to talk about the things that are not necessarily absolute truth. In Romans chapter 14, Paul deals with the problem of questionable things in the Christian life. And what do we do when sincere Christians disagree about very personal practices? Paul recognizes that in each local church there are mature believers, we that are strong, chapter 15 and verse 1, as well as immature, him that is weak in faith, chapter 14 and verse 1. And that these two groups of people, the weak and the strong, the mature and the immature, may disagree on how a Christian is supposed to live. And I want to say that for simplicity, Paul uses immature and mature, but the reality is that there are multitudes on any given scale. It's not like you just fall into one category and then one day you fall into the next category. there's There's a ginormous scale there. And the reality is none of us sitting here today are as mature as we should be next year. We have a responsibility to continue to grow in our faith and in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you should be more mature this year than you were last year. But it's not necessarily... Paul, just for simplicity, uses the two groups. But it's not as if there's just one group over here of immature and one group over here of those that are real mature. But he does draw out the clear truth, as all of us have experienced. If you've been in church in any length of time, there is a division concerning personal preferences and personal convictions a lot of times. And what Paul does, I think is very important for us. What Paul does is he lays down what I would call principles. Guidelines to guide us. He doesn't say, I'm the great Apostle Paul, so I'm just going to tell you to answer to all your problems, and here's the box that you have to live in. He lays down some very Uh, important principles that we need to understand concerning God's grace through us to other people. And we want to examine those today. First of all, let's look at verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 14. I suppose I better get there. I'm going to read it. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 says this. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. 
Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. First of all, I want you to understand that the issue in this particular text is not necessarily meat. It's not a vegetarian versus uh, a carnivore problem they were having. But in their particular culture, what you would have is people who worshipped false gods. And they would take their animal and they would sacrifice their animal to false gods. And then they would take the remains of the animal after this animal was sacrificed. They would take the remains that were still worth eating and they would take them to the local market and they would sell them and then the the meat would get resold on the market. So it'd be like if we were going to go to Dillon's and buy some meat and there's a bunch of meat out there and you're looking for making hamburgers on the grill that night, you really have no idea if the meat that you're going to buy was sacrificed to idols or not. And so the attitude was, first of all, it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Therefore, second of all, since we have no idea if this meat was sacrificed or not, then we simply cannot eat it. Err on the side of safety. This was the argument. And there were some that were saying, no, we can eat the meat, and we give God thanks for it, we pray over it. And there were some who were saying, no, you actually cannot do it. This, this was the argument. Now, I want you to notice that the weak brother was the one that wouldn't eat the meat. That's what Paul says. The stronger brother was the one that was willing to eat the meat. Now, that's, the, that's what the Word of God says. I'm just telling you what it says. But Paul wasn't arguing about which one was right or wrong. Here was the statement that he made. Who are you to judge another man's servant? Here's the point. You don't answer to me. You answer to God for everything that you do. You are not my servant. And nobody else is your servant. And what we should be doing is encouraging one another, as Paul said elsewhere, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But we should be encouraging one another to stand strong and their convictions. I'm getting ahead of myself, but Paul tells us to be fully persuaded. You just need to be fully persuaded. Can I tell you in my own life, my convictions have changed. There have been things that I had deep convictions about, and then quite frankly, as I studied more about the Word of God and, and grew in my knowledge of God, I found out that really that was kind of a ridiculous conviction. Paul is saying simply here that we need to accept others. This is the general principle. Accept others concerning matters of personal conscience and personal convictions. Obviously, there are some things that are essential to the Christian faith, and these things are not optional. I'm just going to name a few, such as the virgin birth, such as the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that His death was a substitutionary death on the cross, that He rose from the grave bodily. He had a bodily resurrection. These things are non-negotiables. We cannot argue about these, and quite frankly, they are clearly stated in the Bible. I'm not talking about stuff that's not clearly stated in the Bible. 
But the Bible's not going to tell you whether or not you can watch ESPN or whether or not you can eat this thing or that thing. And there comes a time when we as God's people must learn to make our personal convictions. What are some of the issues today? Today the issues are not so much centered on was this meat sacrificed to an idol? I don't know if anybody here goes to Dylan's and has that thought on their mind when they're trying to pick out which pack of hot dogs they're going to buy. These are not the issues today. But here's some of our issues. Going to movies. Wearing makeup. Playing cards. Going to live theaters. Watching certain TV shows, mixed swimming, and how someone should dress when they swim, having quiet time every day, going to a restaurant that serves alcohol, wearing certain clothes, owning certain cars, living in nice homes, listening to certain music, drinking wine with a meal, dancing, having a certain job wearing your hair a certain way, having fine and elegant possessions, getting a facelift, drinking coffee, etc. I could go on and on. These are things that people do have personal convictions over that in some ways become a moral issue to a man or a woman. Now, Paul's not saying it's wrong that you have convictions over these things, but here's what he's telling us. We must learn to give each other grace. We must learn to accept each other. Because we do not answer at the end of it all to each other. Who are you to judge another's servant? He goes on in verses 5 through 8. Look, at, look with me. He says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he who God, he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. What's Paul saying here in these four verses? One person might think one day is holier than another day. I'll give you an example of that in our own modern day time. If you've ever heard of the um, group of Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, they are Christians. I've studied their religion. They're just kind of rigid. They're very legalistic. I'm just being the truth. I'm not trying to cut them down. They don't follow any false doctrines like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. But they're called Seventh-day Adventists based upon this one thing that the Sabbath, when the Sabbath was instituted in the Old Testament, God said this is for an everlasting covenant. And they pretty much build their entire thought process on what's the word everlasting mean? It's forever. And the Sabbath is on Saturday. And therefore, it's still today. And they also look at the other Ten Commandments. And they say, so are you saying that that's the only commandment? That, that now we don't have to love God with all you know first. That now you don't have to honor your parents. You should have to keep all the Ten Commandments. And they put them in that block. Now here's the thing. I'll stand here with the mic on, being recorded, and look to you and say this. They have legitimate reasons for why they feel what they feel. 
I believe on the authority of Romans chapter 14, they're wrong. See that the first century church worshipped on Sunday. That that, that that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And if you want to know why, why the shift with the general church as a whole, because now we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the turning point of our faith. It was the whole reason Jesus came, His death and resurrection. But, back to our text. There are some that are going to think one day is more holy than another. Here's what Paul says. And I want you to see how true this is in our own lives. The one that thinks Saturday is more holy than the other day, they do it because they're doing it to God. They really believe this is what God wants them to do. And those who worship on Sunday worship on Sunday because they really believe that's what God wants them to do. So here's the point. Both groups of people are doing what they do for the Lord. So who are we to judge? Let, let God take care of them. Let God deal with them. There are certain convictions that we've got to be careful not to push on other people. Paul said, let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. This is a really, really good rule. When I very first got saved, I had a lot of questions. And see, instinctively, you might find this, um, this comment hard to swallow when I first say it, but I'll prove it to you. Instinctively, we as people don't like to be free. We don't like the freedom of choice. You look at Israel when they left. They hadn't even made it through the Red Sea yet, and they're saying it'd be better if we were back there as slaves. And then God works a miracle and parts the Red Sea. They go through the other side. God brings the water back on their enemies. They say their enemies destroyed before their very eyes. And it's a matter of days. And they're saying it'd been better if we were slaves back there. Why? Because back there, though they had no freedom, though they didn't have, they had lives that were pretty much at best, mediocre, where their children were born slaves, at least they knew what every day was going to be like. At least they knew where they were going to get their next meal. But in the wilderness, they've got to trust God. In the wilderness, they've got to walk by faith that believe tomorrow God is going to provide for me. And instinctively, we don't like to have to trust. We don't like to have to walk by faith, not by sight. And we don't like the, the reality that our choices affect us. Therefore, I have to make the right choice. Preacher, no, I don't want to make my choices. Just tell me. Can I watch this show or not? Can I read this thing or not? Can I go to this place or not? Can I do this thing? Or... Just tell me, preacher, what is the box? Give me the list of 4,000 don'ts and the list of three do's, and I'll do my best to live that the rest of my life. Instinctively, that's what we want. I hated as a young Christian not knowing all the parameters, what was wrong, what was right, what was wrong, what was right, what was wrong. I just, because I didn't want to do anything wrong. And what I really wanted you to do was enslave me into some form of legalism so that I could feel safe and secure knowing that I didn't have to make any choices and that I had no freedom to mess this thing up. That's not grace. That's religion's answer to what happens when we get free. Throw the, throw the weight back on them. Chain them back up because we know how to live that way. You know, a couple of the things, two things briefly, that will stop grace through us is, number one, the tendency to compare. 
We need to quit comparing each other. You're the only one of you God ever made, and you're supposed to be you. And I'll say with, with boldness, you better work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And if you're going to trample on grace because you've got grace to work with, that's between you and your master, and you'll answer for it. But brothers and sisters, you don't answer to me. And I'm not going to throw my list of personal convictions on you and tell you here's how you have to live. If the Word of God is not extremely clear on it, if the Word of God does not define it with absolute authority, then who am I to define it for God? And this happens a lot in the church because we we tend to compare. Well, how does so-and-so live? How does so-and-so think? What shows does so-and-so watch? We're supposed to measure up, by the way, to Jesus. He's the one we're supposed to be following, not man. Now, we have a responsibility to live our lives to the best we possibly can so that we can be the light. I'm talking about us, God's grace working through us. We have a responsibility to live righteous lives before our families, before our children, before our husbands, before our wives, before this world. We have a responsibility to do that. But at the end of the day, brother, at the end of the day, sister, your mark is Jesus Christ. It's not me. And you should be more concerned about the principles that you have as Paul said, settled in your own mind and in your own heart, that you're fully convinced about. You should be more concerned about that than what I let slide. Because the reality is when we compare, by the way, we either look at those that measure up better than us, and we heap condemnation on This is what Paul's saying. There's contempt. We heap condemnation on them for being legalistic. And then, on our own lives, to make ourselves feel better, we look at people and say, well, brother so-and-so watches this. I know he does. He tells me. It's not any worse than what I do. And all of a sudden, we begin to try to appease the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in our heart based upon what brother so-and-so does. Grace towards other people will be nullified when we start trying to compare our lives by everybody else. It's a dangerous thing when people begin to compare pastors. Not every pastor is supposed to be the same way. Not every pastor is supposed to be like me. Not everybody's supposed to have the same delivery. You know how boring the world would be if everybody was like you? If everybody was like me? We all thought the same. Anytime there was a problem, we all just automatically had the exact same solution. How boring would that be? God in His greatness created diversity. And quite frankly, we need diversity to keep us in check so that we've got checks and balances. Because the Bible says the way of every man is right in his own eyes. I'm not right about everything, and neither are you. And therefore, you need me, and I need you. And at the same time, we've got to be willing to let others be. To build your own convictions. And not only does um, the tendency to compare interfere with our grace towards others. Here's what it really comes down to, I believe, in a much stronger way, the tendency to control. We like control. We don't want the possibility of anything happening outside of our control. And so, in order to try to control it, this happens a lot in a church. And... 
I, I, don't, I, I don't even know if I have the time to deal with this this morning. But it happens a lot with in the church where the pastor and the leadership are so terrified of losing control that they place a bunch of legalistic rules on the people. Here's how you will dress. Here's how you will act. Here's where you will and will not eat. Here's what version you will or will not read. I'll take some heat for that one from some of my buddies out east. But it's all really what it is is about control. Because we're afraid of what would happen if people just had the freedom to actually build their own convictions. We're afraid of what would happen if if, if maybe a, a large pocket of the people within the church just disagreed with us on a personal issue of whether or not PG-13 versus radio, where, you know, where's the line? PG-13 or rated R? What's the official stance of the church? Listen to me. We don't have an official stance on it. You better be fully convinced in your own mind. And you better remember you're going to answer to God yourself. But we're going to give you the freedom to build some of your own convictions and to give you the grace to let you be. Now, here's the thing. We need to learn to do that with others. How many, how many times do we really find ourselves judging somebody? You hear that maybe they did this thing or they went to such and such video or they were at such and such place. And all of a sudden, we're passing judgment. And instinctively, we just feel like we're a better Christian than they are. They are not your servant. And we must learn to give grace to other people. To let others decide for themselves. To refuse to dictate to others. And allowing the Lord then to have freedom to direct their lives. Paul says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Can I say that his point seems unmistakably and uncomfortably clear. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. It's not your job to be in everybody else's business trying to overcome their convictions and convince them you're holier than them and their convictions aren't holy enough. It's hard to do sometimes. Isn't it? Because we see somebody else acting in freedom or having different convictions than us and then all of a sudden it makes us wonder if if I'm right or they're wrong. Paul says it doesn't matter. Be convinced in your own mind and love one another and give each other the same grace that God gives you. We see in verses 9-12 through 12 the idea of refusing to judge others. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that He might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Here's one of the rules. One of the principles. Refuse to judge others. Now, I want to deal with this topic of judging. Because it can be mistaken the same way that we, we throw tolerance at everything. Judgment is a pronouncement that your heart is wrong. 
that you are wrong with God. But man looks on the outward appearance while God looks on the heart. I've had people tell me they can read people's hearts. Unfortunately, they don't know how to read the Bible. And until you know how to read the Bible, you'll never learn to read anybody's heart. And once you read the Bible, you find out you can't read anybody's heart. You don't know the motivations. You don't know what, what drives people to do what they do. And pronouncing judgment in this context is, is in essence to say you are morally corrupt. This is different from our responsibility to hold each other accountable concerning the clear things of the Bible. And I'll give you an example. Um, if you're using drugs and I find out about it, I have a responsibility to say, listen, brother, listen, sister, that's a sin. You've got to stop on the authority of the Word of God. Why? Because, number one, we're told to be sober and vigilant. Number two, we are told to obey the laws of the land. Whichever land you live in, here's the land, it's illegal. Therefore, it's a sin. Now, what I'm not necessarily doing is judging your heart and saying, you must be an enemy of God. You must be morally corrupt. That's between you and God. But I do have a responsibility to look at the facts and, if you will, make a decision which could also be termed judgment if you wanted to, that what you're doing is an indicator there's some things in your life that need to change. But you see, the ultimate goal is me helping you get closer to God. It's reconciliation. That's vastly different from the, the, the mean, judging spirit. That's what we're called not to do. And here's the reason why. He tells us. Because we stand before God. Christ is the judge. He's the ultimate judge. We, we all stand before the Lord. In Romans chapter 8, Paul also kind of deals with a similar thought when he says, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And he goes into this great thought process for about another 30 verses. Then he says this, for it's God who judges. It's God. In other words, if God's the one that looks at me and says, I pronounce you righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. If God says the blood is sufficient to pay for all your sins, if your old man is dealt with through the, through the cross, crucified with Christ, and the new life has been given through the resurrecting power of God, if God says on the authority of that ground, I pronounce you clean and right before me, who are you to judge me as condemned? Who are you to judge me as guilty? This is the type of judging we're told not to do. But it doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to hold each other accountable, and we do. We see this so abused in our day and time. You'll have people that are living in absolute, willful, chosen, vehement sin. Look the preacher in the face and say, who are you to judge me? I'm not trying to judge you, I'm trying to help you. And on the authority of the Word of God, it's sin. But we need to make sure that on the authority of the Word of God, it is sin. Lying, cheating, stealing, fornication, drug use, drunkenness, homosexuality. It's sin. That's what God says. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what it says. 
Those things we must stand for. But when it comes to these secondary issues, if you think it's okay to eat this thing, and I don't think it's okay to eat this thing, I need to not judge your heart as being wrong before God, and you need to not judge my heart as being wrong before God. Each needs to be fully convinced in his own mind. Look with me at verses 13 through 18. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to he who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ died, for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let us look at that. First of all, he says, do not put a stumbling block in front of anyone that would cause somebody to fall. In other words, if your brother thinks it's a sin to do this thing, then don't invite him to your house and do it right in front of him. A lot of times what will happen is in arrogance, it's the opposite of love, we'll flaunt our freedoms in front of the weaker brother to try to help the weaker brother grow in their understanding of grace. Paul says, actually, he uses the word destroy. He says you're destroying him. I don't care if you have the freedom to do it or not. You better not do it if it's going to offend somebody. At least out in front of them. Not around them. You see, the attitude is love. The attitude is building each other up. The attitude is helping my brother and sister. It's not about proving me right or proving you wrong. It's about love. And when the real attitude is love, and the real attitude is encouragement, and the real attitude is grace, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure I don't offend somebody. No matter how convinced I am that I'm right. If they're convinced they're right, then let's just get along and not make an issue about it. Let's love each other. It's crazy some of the extents that we will go to when we try to make these rules. I knew of a, a church that was at odds when the movie The Compassion of the Christ came out. How many of you have seen that movie? Okay, about half of you. If you haven't seen it, you ought to watch it. It is a very vivid picture of what happened the last several hours of Jesus' life. But the movie is rated R. And it's rated R for violence. There, are, there is no language. There are no sex scenes. It is just violent. And I'm telling you what happened to the Lord was violent. Bloody. It's hard to watch. It's hard to actually watch Him drive the nails through His hands. It's tough. I've seen it a couple of times. But it's rated R. Well, the church had taken an official stance. 
we don't watch rated R movies. Now all of a sudden comes the compassion of the Christ out, and there is an uproar. Do we watch it or do we not watch it? Do we take the kid? They wanted to take the youth group. The whole youth group wanted to see it. And a couple had seen it secretly. And it said of what a great movie it was and was trying to convince others to, you know, petition. We need to see this thing. And finally, the authorities in, in charge said, we will not watch it. That's the official stance of the church. It's wrong. It's rated R. And we do not watch rated R movies. They're sin. So guess what? They didn't watch it. There's some of you that you hear that story and you think to yourself, you know what, that is so stupid. That is just plain dumb. Let the kids watch the movie. Those, those authorities need to grow up and have a little bit of grace. Well, let me say to us, maybe we need to grow up and have a little bit of grace with each other sometimes. Give people the room to build their own personal convictions. Give people the room to decide for themselves. And you want to know what the right attitude on the authority of this passage is about us towards that church? You want to know the right attitude? We respect that. And we will not Go to your kids, and we will not go to you, and we will not try to cause division. We will, we will respect that, and we will honor that, and we'll make sure any time they're ever around us that we don't cross any of your boundaries that you've set because we love you too much to be divisive about an issue that is secondary. And all the while, I am fully convinced in my mind, and most of you are probably fully convinced in yours, it's not an issue. But it's not about who's right or wrong. It's about the grace to let other people be. I want to stop for just a brief minute and, and think about how often does God show us grace? God gives us the freedom to make our own choices. And I don't know about you, but I've been doing this for 11 years now serving God. I've made a lot of really wrong choices. And not once has God ever stepped right in the middle of it and put His hands on me and forced me to do the right thing. He has lovingly tried to acknowledge me to go the right way. He has often put people in my path to tell me the truth and, and guide me in the way I should go. He has taken me to places in His Word. But at the end of it all, God still gives me the freedom to make my own choices and He gives you the freedom to make your own choices. And even when we make the wrong choice, guess what? He still loves us. He's still faithful to us. And He's still our God. Amen. Now, this is the way we should be towards one another. We should show each other the same type of love and grace. We have to ask ourselves, am I causing others to stumble? Let's look now at verses 19 to 23. I'm done there with, am I causing others to stumble? Verses 19 to 23. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, 
But it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. First of all, he says, pursue the things which make for peace. Here's a really, really good, good um, question to ask yourself concerning these secondary issues. Because they come up. They come up in conversation. Joplin, what do you think about this? So-and-so, how do you handle this? There's nothing wrong with talking about these things. We just need to not be divisive over them. But here's some very good rules of thumb. How do I show the grace of God through me to other people? Ask yourself this. Is this going to cause division and hurt? Or is this going to encourage and help? I've seen a lot of discussions about these secondary issues that were meant to do nothing but hurt. Nobody was really trying to help anybody. This person was trying to hurt this person, and this person was just trying to hurt this person because they disagreed. Can I just take a brief side note and say, you'll never understand how freeing it is when you finally realize you don't have to be over control of everybody. It is freeing. It's okay for people to disagree with you. It's all right. You can love people that think you're crazy about certain things. You can love people that think that you shouldn't be eating meat or people that think you should whatever this or that. You can love those people. It's okay. And when you find out, I don't have to convince everybody that I'm right and we can get along, it is freeing. Because as long as you feel like you have to convince everybody and you've got to prove your point, you've got to stand solid on why you believe what you believe about everything and prove this or that, those types of discussions are unhealthy when they come up. Really, you're just trying to hurt, and they're just trying to hurt. And one of the best ways, you could, in the middle of that type of topic, you can just stop and ask yourself, is this helping? Are we really trying to help each other? Because you can have those types of discussions where you're really trying to help each other. But you know, you know the attitude of your heart. Now stop and ask yourself, why am I talking about this? Am I mad and I want them to see that they're evil because they're watching rated R movies? Or am I really trying to help? And if you're not really trying to help, it's probably best that you just don't have the conversation at all. Talk about something else. Find a way to love them. Find a way to encourage them. This is the attitude that we should have, the attitude of love and encouragement. He says to be fully convinced in your own mind, and then he says, he who doubts, in verse 23, is condemned if he eats. This is one of the greatest rules. One of the greatest rules, and I'm done. Give me five minutes and I'm done. I ran a little longer than I expected, but five minutes and I'm done. I want to close this up and I want to finish it. How do we treat others? One of the greatest rules in determining your own convictions is this. Are you fully convinced? If you're not, quit it until you are. You may study it out and figure out it is okay to eat at Applebee's even though they serve alcohol there. I'm not saying that's my... I shouldn't have even named that specific one. 
I think it's okay to eat at Applebee's. But guess what? It don't matter what I think, and it's okay if you condemn me. I love Applebee's, and I love to go there when they've got the free kids' meals. Good food. Hey, but there is a pocket of people who think it's even wrong to be seen there because they serve alcohol. Now, here's my point. You better be fully convinced in your own mind. And if you're not fully convinced about a particular thing, the Bible says then you're condemned. Quit it. It's a very, very, very healthy rule. I learned this particular rule very early on in my faith. When I, was, when I, when I hated freedom and I just wanted somebody to throw me inside of a box and tell me the list of do's and don'ts, I was terrified I was going to do one of the don'ts. And here's a principle I learned by. If I don't know, then just don't do it. You'll never go wrong being cautious. Get it settled in your own mind. And a lot of people, they'll, they'll dabble around and, and try to cut around, if you will, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, they, and there's some question about whether or not this is right or wrong. And they just keep using that grace word. Grace, grace, grace. Now, listen, if you're not fully convinced, you need to stop. That's what Paul tells us to do. Be convinced fully and completely in your own mind. And if you're not, then you need to stop. Now, here's the final point. Paul says in the next seven verses of chapter 15, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Do you understand this is about helping other people? It's not about us. It's not about pleasing myself. It's about helping you. It's about helping others. Let each of us please his neighbor for good, leading to edification. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here is the entire, the main theme of what Paul has said in all the last verses. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Receive others just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now here's the thing. We've got to be honest about how has Christ received us. How has Christ received us? While we were still sinners, He died for us. You know, after we get saved, we still think a lot of things we shouldn't think. We still at times battle in a deep way the battle of the flesh and the spirit. We find ourselves at times controlled by negativity and, 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 and pessimism and, and, and things go wrong and all of a sudden our attitudes change and we're not loving to people we should be loving to. We're not gracious to people we should be gracious to. We're not thankful for the things we should be thankful for. All of those, by the way, are sin. And yet God's faithful to us. Yet God's grace, it's unmerited. It's just because He loves us. God lavishes His love upon us. And Paul says, therefore, here's the point of everything. As Christ has received you, you should receive others. 
This morning I think about my own life and I think about all the wickedness that I was part of. I think about every wrong thing I've ever done. I think about every person I've ever hurt. And I find myself overwhelmed that God would love somebody like me. And what a hypocrite I would be to stand up here having received the amazing grace of God and not be willing to give you the same grace God's given me. In closing, as our worship team comes, I want to finish with this thought. I started with it and I want to close with it. Isn't it amazing the grace of God that God has given us? I think it's one of the greatest attributes of God. Unmerited, unearned, He just loved us so much to lavish His love upon us, to give His Son that we might have the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of our sins, that we might be reconciled to God. He loved us that much. What an honor, and I mean honor, that He has chosen me and you to be instruments that this grace flows through. I want to ask you this morning, is there anybody in your life that you can think of right now that quite frankly you're not showing them any grace at all? You're at odds with them. You want them to pay for what they've done until you're willing to show them the love of God. Give them grace. Maybe you find yourself this morning, if you're just honest before God and you're honest before yourself, you're saying, preacher, that was me. I'm one of those people that I'm always judging people by my convictions. And if they don't have the same convictions I have, I pretty much think they're just not right with God. Maybe this morning God's calling you to show those people some grace. And can I say as compassionately as I can, and quit thinking yourself so holy. I want to encourage you, church, as we pause on looking at God's grace towards us, I just want to encourage you today, let us be instruments of grace. Are you the type of person that when someone thinks of you, they think of you as a person of grace? I would love to be thought of as that more than anything else. I don't want to be the person that nobody wants to tell what's going on in their life because they're so convinced I'm going to judge them right away. That they keep secrets from me because they're so afraid that if I knew what they did that I'd pronounce judgment upon them. I want to be the person that when they think of me, they think, man, this guy's a guy of grace. He's going to tell me the truth. He's not going to dance around it. He's not going to patty cake with me, but he's not going to judge me either. He's going to show me love and compassion and respect because he's a man of grace. That's what we should all be. And finally this morning, maybe you're here and you've never really accepted the grace of God. The reality is you've been running from God. And rather than surrendering to God and saying, God, whatever it is you have for me in my life, the answer is yes. I will follow you. I'll turn from my old ways. I'll turn from my sins. And I will follow you and you only. Maybe this morning in a strange way that only God can. While I'm talking about our grace to other people, God was stirring in your heart saying, I want you. If that's you this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to come as well as I give you a chance to respond. Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy. And God, I pray for Your people this morning, the church. God, help us to be people of grace. Help us to not be legalistic, judgmental people 
that, do, that don't give people the freedom to grow in their knowledge and faith of You. Help us remember, God, we are not the judge. You are. And God, we need to be encouraging one another, lifting one another up, and holding each other accountable to healthy decisions.